and welcome to The Why Podcast, a new series from London Business School in which faculty talk about their research and what it means for you and your business. I'm your host, Cathy Bruce, and for this episode, my guest is Randall Peterson, Professor of Organisational Behaviour and Academic Director of the Leadership Institute at London Business School. Randall's just written a book with Jerry Brown, chairman of the private equity house NovaQuest Capital, called Disaster in the Boardroom, Six Dysfunctions Everyone Should Understand. The appendix alone is eye-watering. Theft, fraud, bribery, privacy and data violations, sexual discrimination, sexual harassment, tax evasion, all caused in one way or another by a dysfunctioning board. And yet, Randall says, most, if not all, of these failures of boards are predictable, perhaps even preventable. Randall, thanks so much for coming onto the show. So first things first, the directors on the board are meant to be the guardians of the company, responsible for making sure it's well managed, financially secure, operating in the best interests of shareholders and other stakeholders, including the wider society. But your research conducted with Harvey Nash found that 34% of directors globally rate their own boards as ineffective. So what happens when boards are dysfunctional and you know, why does it matter? All right. Well, thank you, Kathy, and thank you for having me on your podcast. This was actually one of the big ideas or reasons for writing the book. Most people think about when a board is dysfunctional that it doesn't kind of matter that much because maybe that company goes out of business and, you know, some people suffer, but it doesn't really touch me as as average person on the street. And it turns out, so we have a whole section in the book showing how it affects each and every one of us, especially when these large businesses go under, they're no longer paying tax, so we end up having to pay more. Lots of people lose jobs, and that has a really massive impact. Or companies engage in something that creates environmental destruction. I mean, we go through all this in the book and show that it's actually a huge impact on on all of our lives when boards get this wrong. So you've identified six different causes of board dysfunction. And in the book, you give real-world examples for each. They all stem from something wrong with the culture. Is that right? Yeah, that at the heart of all of this is basic cultural dysfunction is the core cause of you know so much of what's gone wrong here. And I guess the layperson might think, well, how hard can it be? I mean, why is it such a tough job? <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I think... Back in the day when I first started looking at boards, I thought, well, it should be straightforward. It shouldn't be that hard. But it turns out that if you've got a board of even, say, 10 people and you want representation from each of major groups, you want women on the board, you want people of color on the board, you want whatever things we want that represent, say, customers or society at large, overlay that with the set of skills that we all need here, if they're going to do this job well, you know, high-level finance skills, a real understanding of organizational culture, knowledge of the business. Turns out when you overlap all those things, it's actually really difficult to get all of that balance right, get just the right people in the room who both represent our customer, but who also have the knowledge of the business and the skill to advise it at that very highest level. So it turns out really hard. So you're going to tell us later in the podcast what people can do to to fix their troubled boards. But first of all, could you talk us through these six types of disastrously dysfunctional boards that you've identified? 
sure, we've created six dysfunctions that are also six things that good directors need to do. And the first one is about managing the culture. When the culture goes wrong, boards go from when they're young, for example, this is the story of Uber, when the company's young, being pretty aggressive and going after things was really helpful. The bigger you get, the more that aggressive culture becomes like the central feature and it goes overboard, it boils over. So you end up with what I would call the distended board, which is your culture on steroids and it looks really weird. Uh, anybody from the outside would struggle with it. The second one is really about bystanders board. So everybody feels like they're not fully responsible. There's always somebody else. We're always pointing over here or up there. And in this case, this is BP in the Deepwater Horizons scandal. They literally didn't think it was their problem when it started. And people didn't step forward quickly enough. They did eventually get there. But in the meantime, the world is like, where is the board? And you talk about this sort of culture of safety, this myth that everyone just assumed that it was going to be fine. Yeah, absolutely. And that it, it would work out. And it just doesn't. The third one, and we can talk a lot more about this one, I think, later on, is this imbalanced board or missing key voices, which is a good board does need to represent, at a minimum, kind of our customers, but hopefully larger society as well, For especially for a big listed board that has public responsibility. And you know, key voices are either not there, as in there are no women on the board, or there might be a woman on the board, but she's systematically excluded. And, you know, that's a very topical one right now, the issues of diversity, not just to look diverse, but what does it mean to really operate in a way that reflects real diversity? Fourth one is really about conforming board or what we think of as groupthink. Lots of people know about groupthink. Groupthink is when everybody starts to think alike, there's no questioning and we're all moving forward. You know, there might be a giant white elephant in the corner of the room, but nobody talks about it. And this was the case, there's a number of cases, I think good examples here, and historically of companies that don't want to talk about that one thing. And as a result, we all end up walking off the cliff together. Then you have bureaucratic board. Hopefully, if you've all experienced bureaucracy at its worst, where it's heartless, where it doesn't take anything into account other than what the rule book says, you know, every organization needs rules and guidelines. But if you overdo it to the point that people believe that the guidelines are a substitute for good decision-making. So we talk in here about the big four accountancy firms that create just excessive amounts of rules to the point that it squeezes out judgment and innovation. Lastly, though, the sixth one is the subordinated board or one that is not independent from management. So whatever management wants, management gets. And much of Silicon Valley, in this case, we're talking here about Facebook being a prime example of where the CEO or the founder ends up being the primary driver on a board, although it can happen in other ways as well, particularly, say, in the American system where the chair is typically the CEO, right? It can become a situation in which there is no separation between the two. And they're not really watching out. And if the CEO is not doing well, they're not taking action to make sure the CEO gets it right because there's a lack of independence between the two. So those are the six primary ways boards get it wrong, as well as linked to things they need to get done. 
And when we were talking about this, you said that these dynamics between people on boards, that this doesn't just apply to boards. It's it's kind of almost any group situation where people are trying to run something together, make decisions together. Absolutely. Thank you for raising that and reminding me, Kathy, because that's exactly the point. Then in writing this book, we were first told, well, not very many people are actually directors, so not very many people are going to be interested in it. And we took that as a challenge to say, no, actually, how can we make these issues better understood by, I mean, the huge range of people who are directly and indirectly affected by it, first of all, as in demonstrating the consequences. But secondly, these are fundamental failures of any group that needs to work together to make a you know, decent set of decisions, whether it's a board or trustees or a school board, or we could also just be any group that you're on that has to make decisions that are meaningful and important. These are the typical ways those types of groups dysfunction. I wanted to hear your thoughts in more detail about Google. So just to remind listeners, so I'm sure everyone knows about this already, um, but the sexual misconduct scandals at Google. So from 2017, the US Department of Labor claimed that Google was engaged in systematic compensation disparities against women pretty much across the entire workforce. And then there were all sorts of other sexual scandals as well. So Google, they're huge, aren't they? I mean, a massive, you know, impressive tech company. What did they get so horribly wrong? And what should they have done differently? Well, in this case, you know, what they did wrong, I think much of this is in the public domain, but there were a whole string of executives who engaged in either kind of blatant extramarital affairs or had physical relations and and relationships with others who were also senior people at the organization or at least employed by Google. And what was happening was that every time an executive was caught up in one of these scandals, they would cover it up. So probably the most outrageous one was the Andy Rubin, it was an early one actually, uh, having a relationship with somebody else, you know, who was also working at Google. Now, company policy is, if you're doing this and you haven't disclosed it, basically you should be terminated immediately and, you know, everything should be done right away within the organization. And people below the level of the senior execs, this is what happens routinely when people were caught in relationships They were just dismissed immediately. Andy Rubin, they dressed it up as some kind of, he's going off to do all these wonderful things. He left with all 90 million in value that, you know, in stock, et cetera. And in fact, not only that did they dress it up as something positive, he started a new business, essentially what he was doing before within Google, and Google continued to invest in that company. So not only was he not just terminated like everybody else, He was celebrated, and the company continued to invest in him. And it got to the point where 20,000 of Google's workforce, you know, staged a worldwide walkout in November 2018. You know, this unfair treatment of senior exec live in one world, we live in a completely different world. And, you know, the board, what was happening was that although there was a woman on the board, was somebody basically who was excluded from any of these kind of conversations. So in an era when Me Too is happening and all these things are coming out, 
Google's board misunderstood the outrage of its own employees, but also of the wider public, because they just didn't have anybody in the room that was being listened to who could address and say to the rest of the board, like, no, I know it may not be that big of a deal to you, but this is explosive out there in the world. And we need to do something. We need to be consistent and we need to stop allowing senior execs who we happen to know and like from being exempt from all the rules. And then the issue of pay disparities as well. Yeah, I mean, this is part of that. You know, and that became very public in a couple of notes that they were paying. I mean, they're not alone in this. That's what the gender pay gap discussion and reporting is all about. But they were particularly egregious not doing it through implicit bias, where you value women's work less. It was very explicit. And I think that was what was so outrageous, was, you know, it's one thing if you don't realize at one level, you should, but you don't quite realize what you're doing. It's something, again, to say, well, that basically, it's, it's how we work. And so you say there was only one woman on the board at Google. So would they ideally have set the board up very differently from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where a lot of the tech boards in particular, it seems to be popular. Most boards, most places, every member of the board is completely equal in terms of status. But some of the big tech giants have protected their the founders in the, in the process of selling out. They found ways to protect themselves and their interests. So although they're no longer senior leadership within the organization, they may have for example, privileged voting within the board. So they can, although technically the board looks relatively diverse, in fact, power is held only by a few people. And this is what was going on at at Google, as well as at Facebook and some of the other tech companies is still going on, actually. And that makes it hard for the outsider to kind of fully see that what you see as, say, a photograph of a boardroom or directors or a board does not reflect how power is distributed or voice in that room or voting power in that room. And so the games that get played are about creating a board that looks the part, but in fact continues to suit the handful of people who are in charge and continue to be in charge uh, or continue to make the key strategic decisions, put it that way. Right. So it's not just about having the right people on the board. It's also making sure that they are being listened to equally. Yeah, it's about how do we, (laughs) why would we want them on there? And to listen to that, that it's not just for show. And I I think that's one of the big messages coming out of this book is you can regulate lots of things. You can regulate numbers and say, you know, board has to have X number of women. It has to have X number of non-white directors, because what really matters is, are those voices who are sitting there in the photo genuinely engaged with what's going on, or are they overshadowed by a, you know, a particular structure or subgroup of people who really run the board? And so we need to go beyond the kind of easy kind of photograph and counting and get into how is it that boards and directors actually work with each other. Mm -hmm. So sort of just looking generally, I mean, what needs to change for a company to end up with a board that is functioning really well? Well, 
what needs to change has everything to do with the focus of this book, which is about most jurisdictions have decent regulations these days, and they've made a big difference. But we need to move beyond that and start looking at other things we can do to encourage boards to work in the way that we're talking about here, to genuinely work together as a group of peers, to give direction to the organization, and to reflect those experiences of the people around the table fully in the conversations that we're actually having here. So you mentioned training and the idea of not just training people as individuals, but somehow as a group and making them more effective together. Yeah, I'm sorry, I should have said that. You're absolutely right that when we think of training, we usually, and some board, many boards do this, where they'll send individuals off, particularly as they're new, for example, to training and development work. But what we're talking about here is how do we learn to work together as a group? And actually, what do we spend time together in an annual strategy day, might call it, or away day? Do we spend part of that day talking about how we work together. And this is what a good board evaluation should also be. Does everybody feel like they actually have a voice in the room? If not, why not? For example, and how do we get people to feel more comfortable? Most directors report, surprise, even though they're experienced as senior executives in one business, when you come onto a board, you want to make a good impression. There is incredible pressure to conform and not ask too many questions. How do we get past that phenomenon and get people engaged more constructively, more quickly in the conversations that the board is needing to have about the strategy and direction of the business? And those kind of conversations are extremely rare, but hugely valuable when a board engages them. It's kind of surprising that people at such senior levels within a business should be scared about questioning or challenging things. Well, of course, it's, you know... it. <laughs> It's challenging for two reasons, one of which is that you know we think of it as a kind of obvious natural progression from being a CFO or a CEO into being on a board. But it turns out it's not a natural or easy progression because although you've been running a business, you now need to advise people on that business. The difference is, is that you don't have individual authority. You have only your ability to persuade the other eight, nine, 10 people sitting around the table. And so you've got to engage yourself in a group influence process rather than a, this is at the end of the day, what we're going to do because I'm the CFO or I'm the CEO. And so influence is very different. So there's, first of all, it's getting used to the idea that you have to work differently. And then secondly, of course, they're high status people, but you know, your first board appointment, first few, or you're brand new, like you want to make a good impression. And you know what it's like your first day on a new job. You might ask a few questions, but you're mainly just absorbing. And that's what directors are doing too. They don't just jump in and say, well, here's what I think. Almost nobody does. Again, what they report to us is that I want to make a good impression. I want people to respect me. And the focus is more on me and how I'm coming across than on my contribution early on. And as a result, you're not making the contribution that you might. They're having to think beyond themselves, really, because I guess some of these dysfunctional boards might suit an individual who's benefiting in some other way. Yeah, I'm, uh, I think that's right. Yeah. I'm noticing people on boards are having to really think about what's genuinely good for the company then, what's good for the stakeholders, what's good for the shareholders. 
but they might be on a board that's really dysfunctional that actually suits them quite well. So that's quite a shift in terms of focus, isn't it? Yeah, so and it can be very easy to get wrapped up in being worried about myself and not spend enough time really thinking about the impact you're having in ways that you may not have expected or not having impact that in ways that you could have by not being critical or not raising the awkward question. And yet we know that that's an essential part of any director's role if you're going to be an independent director is to be able to ask those questions. Now, again, there's really good research showing, though, that particularly people who come, women and minorities, when they enter boardrooms, when they do ask questions, because they're not a part of the more informal networks that happen in any boardroom, they're more likely to ask questions that were asked by other people kind of informally, say, before a meeting. And so, rather ironically, women who, for example, there's a great article talking about how the women who enter boards when they first enter are perceived as difficult because they come in and they start asking those questions, which are the questions that men have asked each other before the meeting started. But of course, they weren't part of that pre-conversation. So, you know, I wrote an early, I wrote an article last year in Harvard Business Review about managing the side conversations every in boards, every group has them. And we always start the next meeting pretending that nobody's had a conversation in between. And yet we all know those conversations have happened. And what we don't know is who's been involved in those conversations and who hasn't been involved in those conversations. So why don't we just be more transparent in having a discussion about what side conversations have and haven't happened, who's where, in order to make sure that everybody is fully informed before we get into the content of a discussion. So, Randall, if you're going to offer listeners your three top tips for rescuing their board, maybe even turning it around from dysfunctional to exemplary, fully functioning, what would those be? Yeah, the three things I would recommend. Number one, really think about the culture of the business and the organization as much as possible to try to make it a learning culture. So what do I mean by that? You could also think of it as a growth mindset at the individual level. But this idea that we're going to learn how to get better together continuously. So if the culture is one of we work together to collectively do the best we can, And if you can reinforce that any way possible, that's hugely helpful. Two is to really do that work on collective decision-making and development at the board level. So yes, training for individuals who need some help in certain areas, but spending time together as a board or as a group talking about how we work together collectively would be the second thing. Third thing would be thinking about the people you're bringing in, of course. And for me, the most important thing is these stakeholder engagement skills. So if you have a really good sense of how other people see you, you're fairly self-aware, and you have a good sense of how to work with and talk to others to engage them and move things along, that stakeholder engagement is going to help within the board itself. But it's also going to be how you engage the executive, which everybody needs to do if you're on a board. 
And it's also, of course, how you deal with the broader set of stakeholders out there in the world with everything from shareholders to customers. And, you know, we don't spend enough time prioritizing stakeholder engagement skills for individual directors. Can you talk a bit more about stakeholder engagement skills? What does that really mean? I mean, it's not just persuading people to get them to do what you want, is it? So what are those skills? Yeah, the broader set of skills associated with stakeholder engagement are things like, for example, asking questions before jumping to conclusions. Because you may have a particular read on what's going on here, but actually they're seeing it completely differently. And if you jump in with ideas, you should do this kind of uh, solutions, you may be solving a different problem than the one that they're seeing. And when this happens all the time, and it happens in every group you know I've ever looked at, and probably if you really think about it, every group you've ever been in, where you jump in, different people are trying to, it turns out, solve slightly different problems. So for example, you know, when we first started talking about at London Business School in the at the start of the pandemic, about obviously our, our business has been affected. You know, part of the business was benefiting, but part was really suffering, you know, our executive education, nobody's traveling. How do you solve that problem? And of course, if you talk to people in executive education, they're going to say, well, of course, you know, we probably have to make some cuts, but don't cut too much if we want to rebuild that afterwards. You know, talk to people looking at our degree programs, and they would say, well, look, we've got good opportunity here to develop and strengthen our programs. Let's you know, not cut here at a minimum, maybe even invest a little bit more, right? And then you talk to the faculty, and they're going to say, well, okay, you know, I want to make sure that in, in anything that we do, doesn't undermine the faculty point of view. Now, it turns out all three groups here are actually talking about the same thing, but they're talking about it in a slightly different way. And it makes it pretty much impossible to come together to a kind of unified understanding of the problem, unless we're all working, talking to each other. So stakeholder engagement is, do you ask questions before you jump to conclusions? Do you draw different points of view together? Do you help them, each of these points of view, understand the other? And we work towards kind of a sense-making process where we have a really good understanding of our problems and of what's going on, because all those different diverse set of stakeholders have all had a chance to really contribute to the understanding of the common problem. So really learning to listen a lot better as well as just talking and presenting nicely. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think if you're used to being a senior executive, you do an awful lot of presenting and, and really try to persuade people and you have the power to enforce it. At board level in particular, collectively you have the power to enforce it, but not individually. And that's a real shift for executives going on to boards. And it's a different way of thinking about and what different way of getting things done one that is in place for a good reason, which is that ultimately you want to make sure that the organization both reflects its customers, but also it has a wide variety of points of view represented so we don't make any kind of obvious mistake. And basic research on groups shows that groups are really good at making sure you don't make a mistake. That is what a group is particularly designed to deliver. 
It doesn't always produce the best decision, but almost always, if they're functioning, identifies the risks associated. And it's done in that kind of process I just described about stakeholder engagement. And if you get it right, then you make an informed decision because you know what each of the different risks are. Thank you, Randall. There's so much food for thought there. And I think it's going to be really useful for anybody listening, whether or not they're on a board. What are you hoping to achieve with this book? I think I'm hoping for people who are involved in boards right now to take a broader view of the issues in board effectiveness, really start to think about the behaviours that are going on within the boardroom and the impact that has on the quality of the decision-making, number one. And number two, I want to get a much broader audience to pay attention to what boards are doing because this has massive impact on our lives each and every one of us as a citizen as a taxpayer through environmental damage just anybody you know living within a certain range of these things these boards make the decisions that have that impact and i think it would be fantastically important that a broader array of people start to engage in the discussion about what is a board, what should a board be doing, how should they be interacting, and what kind of decisions really represent the interests the broader stakeholders of that organization have. Thank you so much for coming and sharing all of those thoughts with us, Randall. It's been really fascinating. And the book, Disaster in the Boardroom, Six Dysfunctions That Everyone Should Understand, is published by Palgrave Macmillan. If you want to read more of Randall's thinking on boards and the challenges of leadership, you can do that at london.edu forward slash think. And the Leadership Institute at LBS has a wealth of resources on this too. And that's london.edu forward slash leadership institute. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think at London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. You can also sign up there for free regular email newsletters to get tips, tools and news of our alumni direct to your inbox. And finally, don't forget to leave us a review or rating, which helps new listeners find us. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Hold up. 